This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Hey, um, thank you guys for coming. So my supervisor actually refers to me as proto-Dr. Anderson, which I think is hilarious. Um, And quick aside, I am a queer woman scientist, and so I really appreciate any of you guys who are going to march in the Pride Parade. Um, Yeah, and because I am femme and bisexual, I often feel invisible, so I really, like, support is important to me. Um, Anyway, so, like, this is the talk I gave for my exit seminar. So after seven years of a PhD, um, I compiled all of the successful research that I had done into a talk. And we may do some skipping around um, in order to make it more coherent. Um, But I'm going to go slowly and um, just highlight the really cool stuff, hopefully. Um, And if I am going too fast or if you can't hear me, just like wave at me. That's cool. Um, I respond well to um, heckling. So, you know, whatever you need. Um, And uh, so I work on algal herbivore interactions. um, And herbivory is really cool. Um, So I'm one of those people who likes to start their talk (laughs) with a quote. And I'm realizing this quote is hilarious given the crowd I'm in front of. But um, so the quote is, they devoured all, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Now, does anyone know where that quote comes from? Yeah. Yeah, so this is the plague of locusts from Exodus 10:13, and I'm not religious. Um, but I put it up here because it is an example of how powerful the process of herbivory can be. And so you have this lush landscape. I mean, it's Egypt, so it's still a desert, but you know, there's trees and there's crops growing um, and everything can change based upon the animals that eat plants. Um, And that is the foundation work of my thesis is what changes because of the animals that eat plants. Um, And so I put this up there because um, the Bible didn't get a lot right. Got some things right, got a lot wrong. But like, it really, like, even they picked up on the importance of animals that eat plants. Um, and so I just, I start with that, be like, this is like a fundamental process that we've known about for thousands of years. Um, and this is Old Testament too, right? Um, okay, so as an ecologist, generally what we have is we have what's called communities. And when I say community, what I mean by community is the assemblage of different animals and plants that are all living together. So that is what in ecological terms is a community. And I'm going to use that term over and over again. That means just all the different types of animals and species in one place. And we have different types of communities. We have community A and we have community B and we have C and D. And what we want to know is why there's community A versus community B, and why they're not all just the same. 
Um, and so one of the ways we try and figure this out is we say, okay, so there's community A, let's say it's like a baseline community, and something happens and that can make it become community B, some other community. Um, and generally that's like what's considered like an environmental impact. So for example, an environmental impact would be like if we have this lush green forest and lots of crops, and then all of a sudden we have a drought and all those plants die. That is the environment changing the landscape from community A to community B. And that's like a direct impact of the environment. Um, but we also have these indirect effects where we have community A and there's some change in the environment and that causes something to shift in the way that its species are interacting with each other. And because of that shift is actually the reason why we get community B. Um, and that is an indirect effect of the environment. Okay, so in this case, for example, and this is what happens with locusts, is um, there's a drought in like the desert, and there's still plants, the plants are still surviving, but what happens with locusts is as the water bodies get smaller and smaller and smaller, the locusts crowd on top of each other. And when they crowd on top of each other, they start to like secrete these hormones, and those hormones make them swarm. And it's those crazy swarms that then come in and eat all the crops. And so what you've had is you've had a drought that causes a change in the animal that then goes in back and changes the community as a whole. And that's an indirect effect. The drought didn't directly kill the plants. The drought, the drought changed the behavior of the animals and they ate the plants. Okay? Um, Okay, so then I think about climate change a lot, and I'm one of those people that believes that, you, that science is important for science's sake, but we have a lot of problems to solve right now. So since we're doing science anyway, let's see if we can do them together and see if we can solve problems and also understand how the world works. Um, and we have this incredible phenomenon known as climate change, um, and I study a sub-aspect of that called ocean acidification. So basically what ocean acidification is um, in red, this is real data from Hawaii, in red, um, over time we see this increase in the carbon dioxide in the air. And as the carbon dioxide in the air increases, so does that orange line, that is the carbon dioxide in the water. Because as you put more air, air more CO2 into the water, it dissolves into the ocean to reach equilibrium. Um, and as you put CO2 into the water, it becomes acidic. So this is why sodas are so bad for you. In order to make them fizzy, they just inject tons of CO2 into them. Um, and that actually, it's the CO2 that changes the pH, makes it more acidic. That erodes your teeth, which is why all of a sudden they're more vulnerable to sugar um, and the bacteria that get in there. But it's actually a two-step process. It's also because of the acidity from the increased CO2. So that's what's happening in the ocean, but it's a much slower process as we just slowly put CO2 into the air. Um, and we as ecologists have actually only been thinking about this issue um, in terms of how it affects animals and plant life since about 2004. So it's been less than 15 years that we've been trying to figure out. This was sort of happening so slowly that we just didn't even think about it. Um, but in the last 15 years, we've gathered a lot of information. And this is a huge data slide. 
about how additional CO2 and decreased pH affects animals and plants. Um, and there are little pictures, I'm gonna walk away from that. There are little pictures um, that are sort of fuzzy, and I guess it's best over here. So different animals, like we have corals, and you see all that red next to the corals? That means CO2 is bad for corals. Corals are mostly calcium carbonate. It's the same thing as your teeth, um, which means that they are eroding, just like your teeth do when you're drinking sodas. Um, and um, these are your shellfish that you eat, your mussels, your oysters, also negatively affected. Um, I have lab mates specifically working on um, food security related to that. Um, these are echinoderms, these are things like urchins, um, sea stars, um, and they're a little bit more complex, um, but generally negative effects. Um, and if it's yellow, that's sort of mixed. Sometimes the responses are positive, sometimes they're negative, um, and it's really species dependent. Um, these are crustaceans, crabs, um, and amphipods and shrimp, sort of neutral, they're generally fine. Um, but there's this interesting thing that happens in that CO2 is really good for plant life in the oceans. And this is because uh, CO2 is used in photosynthesis, so it's actually a nutrient, it's a food source. So we have this very interesting situation where the plants are doing better, some of them at least, and the animals that help control what the plant diversity is there are doing worse. Um, and my PhD was to set out to try and figure out like how this was all going to play out. Okay, so back to our communities. Um, we're going to start with community A, um, and this is a very simplified version of the communities that you see just off the coast here. And basically you have a lush algal seaweed diversity, um, and then you have some herbivores, a mix of urchins and snails, which we would expect to be negatively affected by CO2, um, and as well as small crustaceans. Um, in this case, we have amphipods. Um, and if we assume that ocean acidification is only going to have direct impacts on the community, like we can add OA to this community, and then we get a different community. Um, and in this case, we've lost all of the beautiful herbivores, the big ones. There's still a few around, but not as many. And there's a whole bunch more algae because the algae gets, does better and the herbivores do worse. Um, yeah. And okay, so, but if we were to think about this in terms of indirect effects of herbivory, what we might see instead is, is that there's this great community, just like the ones we currently have. We lose the herbivores, and it's actually the loss of herbivores that causes this change in community structure with the plants and animals. Um, and so my PhD was trying to figure out whether or not this first step happens, whether or not ocean acidification is affecting the herbivore community in some way that's going to be meaningful to then changing it into a different community. Um, and, okay, so this next slide is, is like herbivory, herbivory is kind of complex and there are different ways we can think about it. Um, and it's, herbivory is made up of how many individuals you have. So if you have more individuals, they eat more, but also how much each individual eats. And so as a scientist, 
Um, we could have the same number of individuals, but if they just start eating like four times as much because they're really stressed out, like I stress eat, right? So do herbivores. Um, so if they just start eating more, all of a sudden we can just see these increases in herbivory. But on the flip side, if herbivores aren't eating more, um, and then there's fewer of them because they're dying in response to increased CO2 and decreased pH, then you can see this drastic drop in herbivore pressure. Um, and individual feeding rate is a metric of size-specific feeding rate. That's like how much you have to eat per gram, per body weight. And that's how I sort of measure if they're eating more because they're stressed out or less because some people, when they're stressed out, stop eating. Um, and then their individual size. So in general, animals that are bigger eat more, even if it's like the difference between a snail that's like this big versus a snail that's like this big. And there are snails of this big, just not in BC. Um, and like ocean acidification can like affect their stress level, so how much they eat um, per size. Um, and it can do this by, basically that means stressing them out. Um, or it can affect their individual size because as you're trying to grow, and if you're a highly calcified herbivore and the CO2 is rotting away your additional growth, you're not going to be able to grow as fast. So even if they don't die in response to the increased CO2, they might just be smaller, um, which could affect how much they eat. Um, so changes in growth rate. Um, and it can also impact the number of the individuals. OK. Um, so the first thing I did was I looked at four of the most common species of herbivore we have um, off the coast of BC. Um, so I would tell you that you can find all of these in Vancouver, but you can't. Vancouver is um, too sail or too, the water here is too fresh because of the um, Fraser River. And so we don't have the same type of diversity that we do on the outer coast. But you can find all four of these species on the outer coast um, of the island. And so we have the red urchins, and urchins are extremely important in controlling um, biodiversity of um, seaweeds. Um, so are black turban snails, and to a lesser extent, we have these crustacean herbivores um, that do eat seaweeds, but thus far we're not sure if they actually have that big of an impact um, on the community. They don't seem to, but maybe they'll be more important in the future. Um, and just to simplify this again, remember, highly calcified animals are predicted to do really poorly in response to increased CO2. Um, but um, crustaceans, like crabs and isopods, they're supposed to do just fine. That's what we predict. Um, so I went in and I measured their feeding rate. So like I exposed them to these low pH conditions and I wanted to see if they got stressed out and ate more or ate less. Um, just as like a basic fundamental, like how is that interaction gonna change? Are they gonna swarm? Or are they going to just like disappear? What's going to happen? Um, and so what I found is uh, this is going to be most of my graphs. So this is the urchin. And I have how much they ate on the y-axis, and then whether they were under ambient CO2 conditions or future high CO2 conditions. And Basically, all of these graphs look like two bars that are the exact same size, and that's because they are. <laughs> like, um, there was absolutely no change in feeding rate 
of these herbivores on a if you like correct for what size they are. So they did not get stressed out and eat more. They did not get stressed out and just be like, I'm bailing and starving myself to death. They just did the same thing, um, which was not at all what we expected. Um, but if we looked at how much they ate um, across different body sizes, you see that smaller herbivores so like smaller herbivores being on this side, larger on this side. If you're smaller, you do actually eat less, right? And we see that for um, the urchins, and the, again for the snails, smaller snails eat less food. This is very standard biology, breakthrough science. This is what gets you into uh, nature, climate change. Um, <laughs> same thing with the isopods, smaller animals eat less. Um, Kelp crabs, we did not see that pattern. They seem to eat the same amount no matter like how big they are. And this is because um, when you're measuring how much they eat, it's not actually how much they're ingesting, it's how much of the alga they remove. And crabs are weird. They sort of sit there and pick apart everything, whether or not they eat it. So they have this large impact on the seaweed, regardless of their size, because they're just sitting there frantically tossing around their food. They're very messy eaters, um, and so they're very hard to work with. Um, okay, so what we've learned so far is that all my predictions were wrong. There was no change in feeding rates, um, and except those caused by size. But, because I ran this experiment for a long time, what we actually see is that the growth rates start to change under high CO2. So. Um, what we have is how big they were at the start of the experiment and how much they grew. And in red, you have the ones that were exposed to ocean acidification. And in blue, you have those exposed to ambient conditions. So they're not growing as quickly, which means they're not getting as big. And so, uh, and we saw that in the urchins, and we see it in the snails less so. Once again, this blue line is slightly above the red line, which means they're not growing as quickly. Um, we don't see that in the isopods, and because crabs are a pain in the butt, we didn't measure it in the crabs. But <laughs> like, what is happening here is, is that the herbivores under these high pH conditions aren't growing, so they're staying small. And so although a small herbivore is still eating the same amount as a small herbivore, there's usually big herbivores. And so you see this overall reduction in feeding rate. And so I sort of summarize it like this, like size-specific feeding rate stays the same, um, but individual size is decreasing on the average because they're not getting big. You're not getting those big herbivores that chow and mow everything down, which means that individual feeding rate on average is decreasing. And so we would expect to see a decrease in the amount of seaweeds that are being eaten by these urchins and snails, which we know are important herbivores. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, yeah, so decrease in herbivory. And then for the crustaceans, it's a slightly different story where they're not changing what they eat, but they're not changing their growth rates either, which is kind of what we expected, uh, which means they're staying the same and their level of herbivory staying the same. So we're actually expecting this overall decrease in herbivory pressure driven by body size like a very basic fundamental, um, and expecting to see smaller calcified herbivores in the future, and thus less herbivory. Um, and at this point, 
I'm going to jump a section in my talk and we'll go back to it. But um, I actually did a field experiment to look at the implications of this, right? So, Okay, so we're jumping ahead, and once again, what we have found is, is that there's going to be this reduced herbivory, and then the question is, is what are the impacts of that reduced herbivory gonna be? Is that gonna be what's pushing it into community um, B, or is it just an overall effect of CO2? Is this effect of CO2 so strong that we're gonna go into community B regardless of what the herbivores are doing? Um, and to answer this question, I built the set of artificial tide pools. And I did this, <laughs> um, like you've never been a crazy scientist, like when you're out in the field and you've built these artificial tide pools and there's just like CO2 gas bubbling through them, you know, so like your image of like a crazy scientist is that guy in a white lab coat with like the big hair and he's got like a test tube that's blue and there's bubbles going through it. It's even more nerdy when it is 60 artificial tide pools out in the middle of nowhere. Um, this was my baby. This took me three years of my PhD. I love it. Um, <laughs> so in these tide pools, I had six different treatments. Um, and we set up treatments so that we can differentiate between one condition and a different condition. Um, and I'm just going to get rid of two of them off the bat because those were just controls and they serve their purpose, but you don't need to think about them today. Um, and what this is, is I have two different CO2s that I'm pumping into my tide pools. One is just the air. So like I am taking air, I'm compressing it, I am pushing it directly into my tide pools. It's just, that's, it's air. Um, and the other one, I'm taking air and I'm compressing it and I am adding additional CO2 to it. And in this way, I'm uh, simulating the future by about 50 to 100 years. Um, and then across the bottom, what you see is these two tide pools have these red rings around them. These red rings represent copper paint. And copper is toxic to most gastropods. So, um, as gastropods walk up to my tide pools, they touch the copper and they're like, oh, that's disgusting, and they run away from it. So tide pools across the top have herbivores and gastropods going inside them. Tide pools across the bottom, some herbivores get in there, but in general, they don't enter. And so this is what happens if we have reduced herbivores. And this is what happens if we have um, increased herbivores. Um, and like that was all very confusing, I'm sure, but let's simplify it. Um, in blue with dashed, if you see blue with dashed, that is most like current conditions. This is your community A. Um, and that's like ambient air, ambient herbivore pressure, exactly what any tide pool would be experiencing. Um, in this red circle of ominous doom, this is community B. This is the high CO2 community, and this is low herbivore community. Um, and what these other two are doing is they are telling us whether it's CO2 directly affecting, in case this will be a lot like this community, or if it's herbivores driving the change, this community will be most like this community. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, walk through the predictions. Okay, this is a cap scale ordination plot. Ooh. 
Um, <laughs> basically, it works like this. Um, I go out as a scientist and I measure everything about the community and I know exactly how much of species A, B, C, D, E, F is in that community. And I put that all, all that information from all these different dimensions into 2D. And so if a community of points is similar to each other, they cluster. So these orange dots are a lot more similar, these are all individual tadpoles, are a lot more similar to each other than these purple dots are. So, right, so this is a, like a distinct community cluster over here of similarity. This is a distinct community over here and they're not really overlapping. They're very different. Um, and so, if I use this space and I plot like my ambient current condition community onto that space, what we see is they cluster really closely right over here. So those, those tide pools all look very similar because you're experiencing both the same herbivory level and the same CO2. Um, and then if we add CO2, we see that we see a slight shift in the community, but there's generally still some overlap, and that's just the addition of CO2. Um, and then when we add herbivores, or remove herbivores rather, we see that this, there's this whole community shift upwards. So if I'm breaking down, this is the current community, this is our projected community, and they are separate from each other. And so the question is, is, is that a cause of herbivores, or is that caused by CO2? And it's very hard to tell on this plot because it's taking tons of information and trying to distill it into two-degree um, two space, um, which is why I do fancy statistics. Um, and what that fancy statistics told me is, is that, yes, there is almost an effect of CO2, but it looks like that's the same effect that you might expect by chance, just by natural variation in the community pattern. However, there is definitely an effect of herbivores, and it's really the presence or absence of herbivores that is driving this change in the communities. Um, and so this is just one month's worth of data. I ran this experiment for 15 months because uh, communities change through time, and I wanted to make sure that this was a solid response, that it wasn't just an effect of springtime where maybe herbivores have a larger impact on the community because that's when all of the seaweed is like fresh and green and really tasty. Um, so I ran this experiment for 15 months, and now we're gonna take all that information over 15 months and we're gonna distill it into one dimensional space. So we have months from the start, and we have effect. And basically effect just means community structure. And if it is on the zero line, you can see this blue dot, dashed line, that means it's just like the present day community. And so when you add CO2, there's a little bit of variation around zero, but not that much. Um, and then when we remove herbivores, we see this complete shift in the community. And this is an old graph. When I zoom in, it's even more dramatic. But that was before I learned how to zoom. I apologize. Um, <laughs> science is hard. I can't do everything. Um, but you see this downshift, where there's much more of an effect of herbivores than there is of CO2. Um, and so, and this is that's the 15, this is the 15 month time point um, that I showed you in my previous figure. Okay. Um, that's not very interesting. Okay, so what is making this communities different? 
let's talk about Richa. So Richa's is just the number of species that's present. Um, and it's hard to see here because there's a lot of information, but in general, um, there's um, a slight a slight effect, you can see it in this figure better, a slight effect of herbivory on the number of species present in that community. So if you have herbivores, you have more diversity. And it's just the difference between two or three species max. Um, but it's there. And so I wanted to figure out why. So I started looking at individual species. And when you add herbivores, you see this increase in barnacles. Um, over time, but there's always barnacles there. Um, but what you see when you add herbivores is you see this decrease in diatom coverage. Does anyone know what a diatom is? Okay, two of you. That's good. That's more than I was expecting. Um, diatoms are really, really tiny, tiny unicellular algae, and it's basically marine pond scum. Um, and so what you see is when you remove the herbivores, you see this overall decrease in diatoms, particularly during the winter months. And what that allows is it allows other species to get into those spots. So diatoms sort of just cover everything in sludge, and nothing else can live there. And so adding those diatoms, or removing those diatoms, makes space for bigger, beautiful seaweeds to come in, for mussels to come in and recruit, um, for barnacles to come in and be in that space. And so it's not that we're seeing differences in the types of species, we're just seeing more in the same, in one location, right? So all of the species would exist, they would just be more rare species um, on, with herbivores than without. Um, and so, I wish I had a picture to show you, but basically what this means is my tide pools, when there are no herbivores, when we've lost the herbivores, uh, they just look like green pond scum. <laughs> but when we remove the herbivores, all of a sudden you start to see beautiful large seaweeds, um, mussels, a healthier barnacle community, um, ascidians, which are like sea squirts that are like bright red, and all of a sudden the tide pools look like these diverse and beautiful communities. And that's the difference. Um, and basically that's what all these graphs say. Um, and so when you remove herbivores, you see this huge change in community. But there are lots of different types of herbivores. Um, and so what I was interested in is if there were other herbivore species that might do well and be able to come in and replace the herbivores I removed. Um, and that's, and then we're gonna jump back. Um, we're gonna go. Um, and to get at this question, I went to Australia. Um, and studied amphipods. So amphipods are tiny crustaceans that basically, uh, you know when you're on the beach and you knock over seaweed and there are all these little things that look like, they either look like shrimp to people or some people think they look like um, fleas um, and they sort of scurry and they're on their side? That's an amphipod. Um, and they are also herbivores, um, but they're crustaceans which means we don't expect them to be very affected by ocean acidification. Um, and so I went in to see if maybe amphipods, which are these tiny 
undescript, kind of gross creatures um, might be able to compensate for the loss of snails. Um, and I did that by looking, uh, the, the benefit of working with something small is that they usually reproduce fast. So I went in to see how CO2 affected the amphipod populations. Um, and what I found a lot of stuff here, but I'm just going to get to what I found. Um, what I found is, is that, yeah, um, amphipods might actually be a solution. So this was a slightly bigger experiment, and this data has already been published in scientific reports. Um, and is like for control, this is ambient, and this is like we've increased temperature, does temperature affect amphipod abundance? But when we increase CO2, we see these huge increases in amphipod abundance, right? And remember, there are like two ways to change the amount of herbivory. There's, um, you either can change it by changing the size of the individuals, which is what we saw with the urchins and the snails earlier, or you can do it by changing the abundance. Um, and so what we did was we ran this experiment where we allowed abundance to vary. And we found that, yes, in fact, amphipods can increase in number enough to compensate for that loss of herbivory in the other species. Um, um, and that was really cool because if we go back to this graph, once again, with our crustaceans, we see that there was no change in their feeding rates and therefore they weren't going to compensate in Australia. Um, we saw a different story where amphipods can actually increase and therefore compensate for the loss of herbivory. Um, and what this meant for my thesis was, well, I didn't see any compensation for the loss of herbivory locally, and I think that we're still going to see changes in the community structure where things look a lot more like pond scum off our coast. In Australia, I saw different stories where there's this other species that can come in um, and replace those herbivores and eat away that pond scum so that other um, more beautiful, more functioning animal um, plants can live there. Um, yeah, and so that's sort of a bittersweet twist. Um, herbivores are important, and um, it's they actually their loss may be more important than the direct impacts of CO2 on the community. But in some places, like this place in Australia where I was, there will be different types of herbivores that can come in and fill that space. Um, and we may not see a change in the overall community structure. And that's my science. <laughs>